because of the market complexities of selling energy back to the grid, it's a bigger hurdle. But if you can do it within your own building, you can dictate the pricing in a more flexible manner. And I think this could scale within not just a building, but in a microgrid or even transactive energy markets. This is EnergyCast, and I'm Jay Downhauer. Today we're talking about vehicle to building, a modified business model that could lead to quicker adoption for making electric vehicles part of our energy future. I first discussed vehicle to grid, or V2G, back in episode 29. My guest today says that company, Nuve, has specialized in V2G for fleet vehicles. Fleets have advantages in this business model over passenger cars. Take school buses. You know when they'll be in service. If you're drawing from their batteries, you'll know when they're hitting the road again and can top them off. My guest also points out that fleet owners also own the facilities where they're charging. The assets are all in the same books and the same entity pays one electric bill. When it comes to passenger vehicles with multiple owners, the V2G model gets more complex. Like you heard in the cold open, EV owners want a clear method of payment for the use of their car's battery. It's not entirely free. Drawing even a little bit of electricity from an EV uses up battery cycles, which are finite. My guests and their partners have developed a business model to address these concerns. First, for the buildings. They manage the load on these buildings, particularly from EV charging, and will even curtail charging during periods of the day when energy loads are greatest. For the EV owners, they have developed a ledger scheme using blockchain to manage the charging and discharging. These EV owners aren't being paid in crypto. Rather, the blockchain simply manages all the transactions, and the EV owners are paid out on their debit or credit cards. My guest also says the system is smart enough to tilt the program in favor of EV owners. Their cars are charged when power is in demand and prices are lowest, and draws from EV batteries when power demand and prices are high. It's a clear-cut model that works on the building level, but could make huge differences across the grid. My guest today is Carter Lee, CEO of Switch, an energy management company based in Toronto, specializing in vehicle-to-building technology. Earlier this year, Switch announced a pilot to demonstrate their blockchain-based charging system. Switch has been around since 2016. Like I said in the beginning, they also emphasize the advantages of simply managing when old-fashioned unidirectional chargers feed EVs on their system. That can make a huge difference. Carter and I had a wide-ranging conversation about not just V2B's impact on the grid, but also the future of EVs and adoption and even battery recycling. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Carter Lee. Carter Lee, CEO of Switch. And Carter, my last vehicle to grid guest was Nuvi back in 2018. So it's been a little bit. Is your business model any different from theirs? Sure. First off, we think that the work that the Nuvi folks are doing is just fantastic. And we really admire what they've done, particularly in heavy duty bus fleet vehicle side of things. From Switch's side, I would say we approach vehicle to grid as part of a solution to energy management, more for light duty passenger vehicles in consumer sectors. So when we think about the future of EV charging deployments, particularly for regular light-duty passenger vehicles, we think that in those 
locations with charging stations, it's probably going to be composed of a heterogeneous mix of regular unidirectional charging stations, as well as some bidirectional charging stations. And for Switch, we really focus on reducing the barriers to providing EV charging infrastructure by alleviating some of the energy management challenges to providing it within high-density buildings. Regularly, we provide billing, metering, and load management for all types of charging stations. And for a lot of locations, they don't necessarily need vehicle-to-grid to start off and may not even have a vehicle-to-grid enabled vehicle to do vehicle-to-grid. While we believe vehicle-to-grid plays an important role in energy management, we also believe that energy management with regular unidirectional charging stations will also play a significant role in energy management and energy curtailment within buildings and sites. So for a building or a site operator, you don't necessarily need to go all in on V2G you can start with just regular, simple level two charging stations and have energy curtailment. And as industry matures, as more vehicles become prevalent, you can add vehicle to grid as part of your energy management program. So I think from our side, it's not necessarily like you have to go all in or not. You can start in different ways. And I think it's more suited to passenger vehicles on the consumer side. Like I said, Nuva has done fantastic things in the fleet side, and I think that's a little more easy to manage, but we're focused on more of the consumer passenger side things. Yeah. And it would seem that you're more focused on revenue for the owners, which to me always sounds like being an Uber driver without having to take on passengers, <laughs> right? In a way, if you're an EV owner, it's a win-win. You get paid just for the car to sit. Yeah, I think that's a great analogy. I see the financial incentive structures to be one of the most challenging aspects to widespread mainstream vehicle to grid adoption. You ask yourself as a regular EV owner, why would I allow somebody to discharge my own vehicle and risk battery? degradation to participate in these programs. And I think that's why we've seen a lot more success in the fleet space versus the more regular consumer space, is that within a fleet space, the owners and the operators of the EVs are typically also the operators of the buildings themselves. They're the ones paying for the electricity. Now, in the kind of a consumer passenger space side, you're not the ones paying the electricity for the overall building. You might, if it's your own house, but let's say with a large office building or a condominium, right? That's really a different entity. So if you want people to participate in vehicle-to-grid programs, you have to make that financial incentive really clear and easy to manage. Otherwise, we're talking about battery degradation. We're talking about inconvenience. We're talking about a lot of things that could prevent people from participating in these programs. While a big focus is on technology, another really important focus for our pilot is really producing clear financial incentives for owners to provide their EVs for vehicle-to-grid programs. Yeah. And this was first brought to my attention last month that Switch is partnering on an effort to incorporate blockchain to V2G. <laughs> Why would that be a benefit to go that route with blockchain? Why not just have a debit card on file? For sure. And I think blockchain has been, I'd say, overly used in the past couple of years for different business cases. And for us, it's not simply just to make it really complicated and convoluted in the process. It's really thinking about the issues of what energy transactions mean within a building. So let's think about a large office or multifamily building. More and more now, they're putting in solar panels, they're putting in stationary battery storage systems, and 
charging stations and electric vehicles also within that kind of setting. So now if we're going to be using the energy that's created within that building and whether it's through discharging electric vehicles or solar panels or previously stored of energy from battery storage systems, and we're going to be selling that to other tenants of that building, who's going to keep track of those transactions? Usually we count on the most reliable group. It's called the utility. But within a building, we have this term behind the meter, behind the fence. The utilities don't have any visibility of what's going on between peers within that building. So that's why we've introduced the blockchain technology as a ledger system to track energy transactions that occur within that building. And nothing more. It's not some grandiose payment transaction systems. We would still love for people to just use debit cards and credit cards, and they do, they can. This is more to track what actually goes on after after the charging transaction occurs, when your energy gets used up to power some lights or even the HVAC systems at certain periods of the day where it's really expensive energy from the grid, so you'd rather be pulling it from the building. So that's the real reason why it's a third-party energy metering system, if you will. Yeah, using blockchain, I would have to think that you kind of want the ecosystem that you enter into with that to basically have it where the users keep everything converted to blockchain, right? They're just crediting and debit on that. There shouldn't be that much cashing out, right? Exactly. And this is just to provide a database that's secure and that's accurate. It's not meant to replace your debit transactions or credit transactions of the actual charging. It's just a ledger system to make sure that everything is correct and accurate and reliable. So how do people get started? Do they put money in? It gets converted to blockchain bucks? (laughs) (laughs) No, yeah, it's a great question. And I think it's really tough to decipher because when we usually hear blockchain, we think about cryptocurrency and Bitcoin and Dogecoins and all that fun stuff. But for us, when people pay, they just use your credit card and they pay and they get credits for charging. And they're going to get paid at the end of the month through a debit or credit payment. But throughout that course of that month, between the debits and credits and all these other things, instead of a whole bunch of microtransactions that occur for you sending two kilowatt hours here and three kilowatt hours there, that's the third ledger system that keeps track of it before it gets debited and credited at the end of the month. For end user, you don't have to do any of that cryptocurrency stuff. You just pay with your regular credit card or debit card, and then you'll get a monthly debit or credit based on the balance of energy that you've transacted, you've shared, or you've consumed. And again, this is completely transparent and immutable in terms of the data and really just providing a secure ledger system to account for all the transactions that occur. And Carter, I'm curious, when you're doing V2G, you're basically having individuals selling power. And I think this is more of an opportunity in a lot of ways. And I think people who own solar panels, they think they're going to be selling back to the grid a whole lot more. I think sometimes in a lot of regions that's not available. So how are you pricing kilowatts? Is it dynamic, like demand response, right? Or is there a fixed price per kilowatt? How is that working? Yeah, that's a great question and definitely one of the most challenging elements of this project is to price it competitively and accordingly. If you're selling this energy to peers within that same building, it has to be cheaper than they're getting it from the grid at that moment in time. We work with a variety of different partners that are really experts in this field. That includes this great company called Opus One Solutions, as well as other groups that are very much in that space like Peak Power 
And they're the ones who control the market components of when to discharge and when to charge their vehicles. And that produces that market mechanism within that building so that everybody benefits, so that we're charging up the vehicles when it's really cheap electricity at night or whatever that peak period is, and then discharging that energy to be used when it's really expensive to be using it from the grid. And I think vehicle to grid and this whole system allows for not necessarily having to have the utilities be able to buy that stuff. You mentioned there are certain markets that if you had solar panels, it's just not really feasible or it's not really worth it to sell it back to the grid because then you have to sign up for this, you have to sign up for this, and financial incentives aren't that great. But if you can do it within your own building, you have a lot more flexibility and you can dictate the pricing in a more flexible manner. And I think that's what makes it really exciting and how this could scale within not just a building, but in a microgrid or even in transactive energy markets. Right. And so to understand the model correctly, you keep talking about buildings, right? It looks like you're applying V to G. So an electric vehicle comes in and parks at a single building. And essentially that is the grid, not the grid at large, which I think has kind of been the model with V to G in the past. You basically just plugged into a charging station and it fed the entire grid, right? Do you think this is more of a model for V to G to essentially turn the charging station into a microgrid for something like a surrounding building? Exactly. And as a specific term for it, it's actually called V to B, which is, you know, vehicle to building. I mean, the big reason for it is because of the market complexities of selling energy back to the grid. It's a bigger hurdle. There are groups that are definitely doing it. And I think utilities are very interested in this in vehicle to grid. But there are some barriers or some hurdles until we get to that kind of mass adoption of vehicle to grid business model. But say like your current region, your utility doesn't really have a program to enable vehicle to grid, but you know, you can sell this energy back to the building or the building can use that energy to reduce their peak energy loads, this is an easier way to integrate bi-directionality into that model without having the market and the local you know, utilities be able to offer a program to enable that. So it's not necessarily a stopgap solution, but this is a quicker path to commercialization, I guess. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. You know, And if I'm a utility, I'm almost thinking I would want to support you guys and just let you handle it. And if I'm the utility, I'm going to supply the power and then you guys can whack it up however you want. Are you getting responses like that from utilities? Yeah, I think so. Ultimately, everybody benefits, right? Because we kind of flatten out the peaks and valleys for them. So they have a more reliable system. The loads are more predictable. I think it's really a win-win in that regard that we are able to monetize and leverage these gigantic batteries in a much quicker way. And we still achieve on at least a micro level what we want to achieve on a macro level, which is to improve the stability of the grid through these buildings becoming more flat in their energy consumption. Right. So to understand V2B, as you call it, everything is happening inside the building, charging to the EVs, the EVs feeding out. And what you're trying to do is make the building appear more energy efficient to the grid, right? You're trying to lower that demand by playing with the EVs and what they're able to help provide. Exactly. Energy storage has always been interesting and a lot of potential. And I think the idea of not having to buy energy storage systems that people will inherently adopt and have this capacity, I think that's what makes this whole vehicle, the building vehicle, the grid concept really interesting, right? And because you're not spending additional amounts of money to acquire this technology, it's going to be there. So how do we use that the most effective way possible? 
Carter, I got to ask, how did you and your team come up with this epiphany, if you will, to just say, look, don't do V to G, do V to B. Just manage this on a building level and that simplifies the process. It was definitely an exploratory phase and we learned a lot from groups like Nuve and seeing what they're really successful at. And again, I think they've done a fantastic job, but the barriers and the challenges are there. It's certain jurisdictions, certain geographies, there's just not a clear market for vehicle to grid, but everybody's looking to reduce their peak loads in their buildings. They're looking to put in stationary storage batteries and they're looking to put in just regular charging stations anyways. We're talking to building operators and real estate developers and they're asking us, how can we reduce the load of these EV chargers more? And do we need to put in stationary storage batteries? Isn't there already a battery in a vehicle? Can we use that? All these conversations with our clients, with partners and with the utilities, it seemed like this was the easiest path forward and this can serve a very unique purpose until the wider vehicle to grid market becomes more prevalent and more mature. Yeah. And a few of the issues that I discussed last time with Nuve were public concerns about depleting the battery or, and you mentioned this at the very beginning, burning up all those precious and finite cycles an EV's battery has. That's more of a messaging issue than a practical one, right? So what's your message? That's probably the number one concern for people when they think about this vehicle, the grid or vehicle, the building model. And I think it's a fair one. In the past, there has been some data that's shown that there is battery degradation and it's easy to believe, right? They're just battery cycles. But I think it's a bit exaggerated, especially given more and more data that's coming in from other vehicle, the grid pilots that shows that the battery degradation is minimal and that the financial and the environmental benefits of employing vehicle, the grid technology far out way the cost of the minimal battery degradation that we see, especially if the actual vehicle the grid discharge loads are managed effectively, meaning that you're not trying to pull too much battery energy out of one car. If you just pull some energy out of a bunch of cars, that in itself is a great way to prevent battery degradation. And in terms of our messaging, we see vehicle the grid or vehicle the building as a part of the overall EV charging management system. There's going to be regular level two unidirectional chargers in a building, and there's going to be vehicle-to-grid enabled electric vehicle charging stations. When we want to do our energy management or curtail active EV charging, we're going to go to the low-hanging fruit, which is the unidirectional chargers, and curtail and reduce their loads first. And it's only when we need to extract energy, that's when we actually pull the actual vehicle-to-grid energy out of the vehicle. So when you participate in these programs, it's not like we're just pulling energy out of your battery every single day. There's certain periods of the year where that's the most beneficial and will definitely provide a clear financial incentive for people to participate in that program. But it's really a combination of slowing down charging for regular charging stations and then pulling energy from these bi-directional charging stations. You mentioned unidirectional charging stations, and I'm thinking as someone who's specializing in V to G, why wouldn't you just want a world where all of the charging stations are bi-directional? Is it that big of a financial or an infrastructure change? Right now, there is a clear 
price difference between a regular unidirectional charging station and these bi-directional charging stations. And there's not a lot of cars that can simply do this at this point. When people or real estate developers or building operators start putting in charging stations in those buildings, they're likely, at least initially, going to be unidirectional. But that doesn't mean we can't optimize those things. Once they're in there, you don't want them to be just dead weight and you don't necessarily want to throw them out just because they can't do bi-directionality. There's still a lot of potential to maximize those existing resources to optimize energy and to curtail energy from those charging stations. When vehicle to grid becomes more and more prevalent, and I think the price difference between a bi-directional charger and a unidirectional charger becomes almost negligible, then I think it totally makes sense just to have bi-directional charging. But I think that we're a few years away from that. And I'd hate to see all these unidirectional chargers that are being put into those buildings right now, not being maximized and not being effectively managed in that space. Yeah. Carter, I want to ask you a few questions about how you feel the EV market is coming along. And I live in Charlotte, North Carolina, and I've spent a lot of time in more rural areas. Look, I think we're getting close to reaching critical mass with the ideal EV owners, you know, two vehicle households with a covered garage. How can you and other companies in the industry make it accessible to say the single guy who has to park on the street in front of his apartment? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a big challenge for sure. And it's funny because that's the main reason why Switch was started, because I was that single guy living in an apartment building in a downtown urban building who wanted to get an electric vehicle and I couldn't find charging. That was like 2015. We've come a long way since for sure. But it's still very difficult. I think property management companies, real estate developers, they really do want to provide this amenity to their residents and tenants. But when these buildings that were built 50 years ago, 70 years ago, the electrical infrastructure, they were never designed for 30 people to charge their EVs at the same time. That's really what we're focused on is how do we maximize the efficiencies of these buildings, even if they're 30, 50 years old, to provide reliable and convenient charging for people who live or work in those buildings. And I think it's not impossible because if you kind of think about how long you stay in those locations, for example, in your work, it's usually nine to five. So that's at least eight hours where you're kind of parked there when you're at home, you sleep overnight. Even if we were to slow down charging and share the loads between a bunch of different owners and EV vehicles, everybody should still be able to get a full charge at the end of their dwell period, whether it's at the end of their work shift or when they wake up and they go to work. There's enough power there to provide that amount of range for everybody. It's just our job we're working on is solving these problems to make it easier and make it work for them. It doesn't need to be this massive overhaul of electrical infrastructure to achieve that. Yeah, that made me think of something. These buildings don't just have an endless supply of power, right? They have a finite amount of amperage coming in. Do existing unidirectional EV charging stations have some sort of governor on them that keeps from overheating the building? Uh, <laughs> is that maybe where you guys come in? Because if you have several EV charging stations, that could probably equal what the rest of the building is pulling, right? And maybe the building isn't made for that. Exactly. You hit the nail on the head in terms of what do you do, right? There's quite a few approaches to doing that. The simplest way is if you only have, let's say, a 40 amp circuit, you can split that with four different charging stations. And the idea is that not everybody is going to be charging all at the same time. Not all of them are going to go from like zero to full whenever they charge. With that finite amount of energy, it's been shown that most buildings can accommodate 
a large amount of electric vehicles and EV owners to get their full charge for their regular commute, which is usually like 30 to 50 miles a day. With that in mind, you can do all kinds of fun stuff to manage the energy. You can program a 24-hour schedule where electricity loads are really, really high at say like 4 p.m. to 6 or 7 p.m. when people are coming back from work and they're cooking and they turn on the heat and that sort of thing. If you know that there's a peak load at a certain period of the day, you'll tell your charging stations within that building to only operate at, say like 25% output and then automatically after 7 or 8 p.m. the loads become a little less constrained that you can allow them to automatically go back to 100% and then you can also do dynamic the chargers talk to each other they also see what the loads are in real time of what the building is so they can actively react to those those are all technologies that switch and other groups in our industry are working on to kind of flatten the curve is just like these ups and downs we know where the ups and downs are so we'll just plan a accordingly that at the end of the period that you need your vehicle that you'll get your full charge and that's where we're really prioritizing our efforts on another question more generally i'm doing a panel at power gen on lithium-ion recycling how do you think we can make that ecosystem more sustainable yeah i think that's one of the biggest things about the sustainability aspect of electric vehicles right it's like how green are they when huge lithium mining projects it is a significant environmental impact but i also think like you said like recycling and even like second life whether it's not direct recycling but also repurposing really extends the lifetime value of these batteries the most common thing for electric vehicle batteries is because they're super high-end batteries after eight to ten years they don't perform at the same level that they do, but they can be repurposed for long-term energy storage, right? And then that's another 10, 15 years. And when it's not good enough for long-term energy storage, then you can recycle them back to its original materials and then repackage them again. So I think that element of sustainability is really finding second and even third life opportunities for batteries that don't require that much amount of power like they do for electric vehicles. Sure. One of the things that I'm going to talk about is that it bothers me that I don't believe you could both source and construct a lithium ion battery pack within North America, let alone the Northwestern hemisphere, right? <laughs> you know, the lithium comes from South America. There's supply chains that run through Asia, for instance. Given the supply chain challenges we've seen, don't you think that maybe that's a national security issue? I would say for both the United States and Canada, right? North America. Mm -hmm. Are we working towards a supply chain that would be on the continent? <laughs> I think so. I'm not a battery expert, but I am familiar with colleagues who are very much in the battery supply chain sector. And from mining to recycling, that whole value chain, I think a lot of groups in North America are realizing what you just said, that it is a national security issue. You know, when the only place to get cobalt is in Congo and other places, people are looking for alternatives, whether it's refining the battery chemistry to use less cobalt, refining or securing access to nickel and lithium and all these other places in North America. I think a lot of groups have recognized that this is an important issue. And I think given 20, 30 years that the North American supply chain will be, I'd say, less dependent on overseas resources. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of folks out there who would like to see the government come in and build an EV charging infrastructure coast to coast. But as a private company, I'm mm -hmm. sure you'd like that action, public, private. What do you think the balance is there? 
That's a great question. Is it privatized? Is it public? I think there's pros and cons to both sides. And ultimately, I think the consumers will decide whether they want a public charging infrastructure network versus private. And if you look at oil and gas, it seems to be mostly privatized. And even in the energy utility space, that depends on the jurisdiction and regions, right? So I don't know if I have that crystal ball or on that wise to say that private or public is better. But I would say that given certain locations like commercial buildings or multifamily buildings, I see it particularly challenging for a government entity to be able to manage those assets efficiently or effectively. So I think it might be a bit of both. Maybe for public infrastructure, maybe it should be run by a public entity and private settings like your own home and businesses think that maybe a private solution might make more sense. We're just going to have to learn and refine from it. There's pros and cons on both sides, I think. Absolutely. Carter, going to finish with a lightning round of your thoughts on different energy technologies, starting with natural gas. A good step forward. I think there's a lot of talks about methane leaking and that sort of thing. But based on what's happened in the last couple of days with a lot of nations addressing those issues, I think we're on the right path forward. This fits a bill for a path to sustainability. Crude oil. I think there's very energy intensive ways of extracting crude oil and less so. And it seems like the more prevalent ways of extracting crude oil seem to be very energy intensive. So I think that's a challenge that we probably need to figure out if we're going to continue extracting crude oil. Nuclear. I think there's a lot of interesting advances in nuclear. These small nuclear reactors are becoming one of those up and coming technologies. And I think there's a lot of value to nuclear. I don't think it deserves the rap that it gets sometimes. I think this will play an important role in our more sustainable future. So I'm in support of it. Coal, and I'll add coal with carbon capture. <laughs> if it had carbon capture. Of course, of course. Yeah, I mean, coal, we all know, is not clean, and it's probably the least effective ways to generate energy. And of course, there's a lot of talk about carbon capture. Elon Musk recently put out some sort of reward to find a really effective carbon capture technology, because right now it's still relatively new. For us to effectively use carbon capture, that the energy used to do this needs to be efficient to justify the actual process itself. Maybe they'll get there, maybe they don't. I don't have visibility into that. Wind. There's definitely great places and great ways of combining wind and solar to manage those peaks and valleys of energy generation when there's not enough light or not enough wind. So I think it plays an important part in our green energy future. I'll count that as solar too, okay? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> All right. Biofuels. There's certain steps to achieving just pure clean energy. And I think biofuels is a good step forward. That's my perspective. Hydroelectric. Don't knock the old school guy. These hydro dams have been producing energy for over a century. I think it still plays an important part. Of course, you don't want to dam up huge and change geographies and all those sort of things. So I think the cost benefit analysis needs to be clear and what you're affecting in terms of the land. Solar seems to be probably a lower impact way of generating electricity. But if there is the right situation or location for hydroelectricity, I think we shouldn't completely disregard it. Geothermal. Again, I think this is one of those great combination with wind and solar and everything, especially within the built environment. If you have that location that is very beneficial to employ geothermal, absolutely a no-brainer. And you guys are kind of in between these next two. First one, energy storage. Battery chemistry, costs, all those things will point to its success. And I think even without these quantum leaps in, say, solid state batteries or something like that, I think energy storage is well on its path to success. Electric vehicles. I feel like I've talked enough about electric vehicles, but I'm definitely a proponent. <laughs> Energy efficiency. Anything that makes things better in terms of not requiring as much 
input to get output. Why not? Your LED light bulbs are producing the same amount of light and consuming tenth of the energy. Why not? I think it's definitely an important part. And then finally, fusion power, nuclear fusion. <laughs> I'm definitely not a nuclear fusion scientist. I think it's great. What we've seen in everything says once it works, it's just going to solve everything, right? But I think you know when and how it works. Can't wait till the day if it ever happens. I think it's going to transform the world instantly. But we'll see when we get there, and we'll have to figure out some interesting solutions until that happens. All right, Carter Lee, Switch, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much, Jay. It was really fun having me on this and I really enjoyed the process. That was Carter Lee, CEO of Switch, an EV energy management company based in Toronto. I want to thank Carter for his time as well as David Bosworth at Bullseye Communications for setting this up. You can find plenty of pictures for this episode on energy-cast.com as well as on Instagram and Parler at Host Energy and Twitter at Host Energy Cast. All guests are sent the raw and completed audio the week of release. So far, no complaints. Be sure to leave us a positive review on iTunes. That gets the word out. Music was produced by Sean Stroop at Stroop Loops. That wraps up episode 120. Be sure to join us next week when I host a panel of lobbyists to discuss why our nuclear fleet's future is often decided at state capitals. Until then, I'm Jay Downhower. We'll see you next time.